Hey, this is Shane Valenstein, the pastor at City on a Hill Community Church. I want to welcome you to our sermon podcast. I hope that this podcast helps you grow deeper in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, you can visit us at cityonahillmd.org. Enjoy the message. But we are in the final week of our Kingdom Come series. And all month long, we've been talking about how to make an impact in the world around us, how to make a difference in the world. Uh, we, we talk about a lot of times in church, we want to make a difference. We want to impact the world around us. And um, we, we've been focusing on how the church can do that by serving others, by blessing others, by being intentional about, about what we are doing. And this world that we live in is in desperate need of difference makers. Desperate need of it. You probably already know this, but we need more people who, who look around and, and recognize that there is destruction, that there is hate, that there is devastation, that there is division, that there is evil in this world, and we need difference makers to look around and say, this is not good. How can I help make a difference? What can I do to, to make this place a better place? What can I do to change this world around us. So we've already talked about um, a few people. We've talked about Nehemiah the first week, and we talked about how he really made a difference, how he looked at his home, how he saw that it was struggling, that it was in devastation, and he went home and rebuilt the city around him and made a difference. And then we also talked about um, Elijah and how he faced off with the prophets of Baal and was willing to go to, go to war against 450 prophets to one, and he, was, and, and he saw God come through, and he still got scared in that moment, but then trusted in God, and God spoke to him. And then we had Orphan Sunday, and Pastor Terry did a great job when we had Breakfast Church and Orphan Sunday talking about how there are orphans in our world, and we have a responsibility as the church to care for the orphans, to care for the widows, to care for those in need, to make a difference in that way. So our church wants to be a church that makes a difference. We want to be a church that raises up leaders. We want to be a church that raises up people who are willing to, to have an impact. But a difference maker's job is never done. He or she will constantly have to work at improving the world around us. It's, it's part of living. It's part of being a human being. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. But the church is called to be a place that, to, to make a difference, and we have to go and not sit and wait. So hopefully throughout these last few weeks, you've been able to grasp the fact that you can make a difference. Because it's easy for us to look around us and be like, well, surely somebody, somebody needs to make a difference in this area, but not me. I don't have the skills. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. Somebody else is going to, and I see the need, but I'm not the one who, who's going to really change it. But we're really good at coming up with excuses. Either I'm too busy, someone else will do it, like I said. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the resources. I haven't properly been trained. And we can talk ourselves out of any situation that we want to talk ourselves out of. It's not hard to talk ourselves out of anything, right? Even like going out when it's cold outside. Maybe this morning it's cold and it's raining. It's so easy to talk ourselves out of it. Ooh, it's just so cozy here. I don't, if, if I go outside, it's cold, it's raining, I'll get wet, it's windy, 
I got to drive there. My car's going to be co- I, I don't have a remote. My, my remote starter's not working to warm up my car before I get in there. We can come up with any excuse that we want to, any reason that we want to, to not do something. It's so easy to do. But if we want to make a difference, then we need to get rid of our excuses. We have to stop looking around for other people to do it. And we have to be willing to take the time to actually help others. You have to make that decision. If we're truly going to make a difference, the need is great, but the workers are few. And this isn't a new problem. Jesus talked about this. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There are very few people who are actually selfless enough to step up to not do something for ourselves, but to do something for other people. Very, 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 very few people in our world willing to do that. Even when we help, we want something in return, whether it be recognition or popularity or whatever, fill in the blank. So today we're going to look at one of the more famous guys in the Bible who made a huge difference. And this guy's name is David. And Jesus often refers to David as well. But chances are you've heard of him. He's known for doing a lot of great things. But the bottom line is David made an impact, a huge impact that our world still feels today. It's amazing when, when, when you think about it. So what can we learn from his life? Here's, here's the first thing that we discover about David. And we're going to read different scripture, and we're going to hop around in, in, in his life and see kind of what experiences he had. So, so stick with me. But the first thing that we learn is this. Don't judge by appearances. Right? Don't, don't judge a book by its cover. Because when David was just a teenager, when he was a kid, there was a guy named Samuel who was a prophet from God. And he would speak on behalf of God as all prophets would do. And Samuel would, would talk and he would communicate. And God tells Samuel that Saul, who is the current king and actually the first king of the Israelites, um, Saul is no longer fit to be king because Saul has turned away from God. Saul was doing some great things. He was having a good impact, but then he became self-centered, as many of us do. And see, it's easy for us to start with good intentions and then either get frustrated along the way, get mad along the way, upset along the way, or feel like we're not having the impact that we want, or we feel like people aren't giving us the recognition that we deserve. There so many things, right? So Saul started off doing well, and then he kind of steers in the different direction. And God decides, all right, he's no longer fit to be king because he's not obeying what I am telling him anymore. So Samuel is looking out for the next king that God is instructing him to. And he, God is telling Samuel, when you see whoever the next king is, you will know. You will know who it is. I, I'm not going to say, hey, go find David out in this field. He says, when you see him, you'll know that he's supposed to be the next king. So Samuel's out looking for the next king, and God brings him to the family of a guy named Jesse, who's the father of David. But he's not just the father of David. He has a bunch of sons, okay? And this is what, this is what happens in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Samuel looks at them. They look impressive. And then this is what God says to Samuel. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him talking about some other brothers of, of David. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Samuel basically goes down the line of all of the sons of Jesse. And not just Samuel, right? Jesse says, oh, you're here looking for the next king of Israel? 
let me bring out my sons. And he brings out all of his sons except for little tiny David, who's the runt of the group. He's the youngest. He's out working. He's out tending the fields. He's out tending tending to the sheep, tending to the flock. His own father didn't even think that David could possibly be the next king. I mean, there's a man in his house who's a prophet of God, Samuel, who's well-known. Jesse knows who Samuel is, and he shows up at his house, and he says, hey, God, God's telling me that the next king of Israel is in your house. Really? Okay, let me go and get all of my sons. Let me, the most impressive ones. And he leaves little David out in the field, and he starts with the oldest, and Samuel goes down the line. Nope. Not him. Nope. Not him. Not him. Seven sons of the eight. Not him. Not him. And even Samuel is looking at him and he's like, yeah, they look pretty impressive. Oh, this guy's big. This guy's strong. He looks courageous. He looks like he could, well, nope, God's saying not him. Not, nope, not, okay, not him. Not him. All the way through all seven. And then when he gets to the last one, Samuel didn't have a sign from God of who the next king would be. And he says, do you have any other sons? Could you imagine being one of the seven standing there and being like, oh, no. You've got to be kidding me. And even Jesse being like, I mean, I do, but you don't, you don't want him. I, I didn't even think that he would be a possibility. He's out doing some other stuff that anybody can do, but we're just going to leave him out there. And Jesse finally says, okay, let me bring in my youngest son, David. I mean, I have another one. And here comes little tiny David walking in. And if we were judged, if they, or rather, if they were judged by their appearance, by God, David didn't have the look of a king, at least not by the world's standards. But God looks at people differently than we do. We size people up right away. We look at each other and we're like, okay, I've got this person figured out. Okay, yeah, yeah, you know what? I don't think that this person can really be somebody who, who can really make a difference. This person seems like, ah, eh, they're, they're not going to bowl. But this person over here, they're really loud. They're outgoing. They've got personality. They seem like somebody who could really make a difference. Maybe this person is a person. That's what we do all, all of the time. But we don't know what is going on in a person's life? I remember a few years ago, um, George, I'm going to tell a story about you. I didn't ask you, but I'm going to tell a story about you. You're, you're my friend, so I feel like I can do this. But anyways, when we were first starting City on a Hill, and uh, George and Terry were pregnant with Gabby, and, uh, and then Gabby was born as we were launching church. Uh, she was born in December, and we launched church in March. And so we're getting ready to, uh, to start church. And I remember this. I don't know if you remember this, George, but I remember this. One particular uh, time we were together, Gabby was born. She was really young. And George was talking to Lauren and I. Lauren's my wife. And, he, and I was like, how are things going? And he was like, do not have kids. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't do it. Don't, please, trust, just trust me on this. Take your time don't have kids. It's, it's really difficult. This is what he's saying to us. What he didn't know was that Lauren was pregnant as he was saying this to us. 
And the whole time, he's just like, it's the worst. I'm telling you, it's so terrible. But they're in the very early stage, like a newborn. And Lauren and I are just standing there like, oh, goodness, this is awkward. Because she wasn't, she was, she was very early on, but we both knew that she was pregnant. And George is telling us, don't do it. Trust me, whatever you do, don't get pregnant. And he had no idea, right? We hadn't announced yet. We hadn't told anybody yet. But I, I don't know if I told you in that situation or, or if we just announced later and he was like mortified. Oh my goodness, I just told you how terrible of a situation it was and we're standing there. But it's so easy to talk to somebody and you don't know what's going on in somebody's life. We don't know. Even somebody that you consider close to you, even somebody that you consider a friend, even somebody that you're like, oh yeah, I know this person. You don't know everything that's happening in their life. And it's easy for us to judge without having the full picture, without having everything there. And here at City on a Hill, we're not worried about what you look like. We're not, we're not worried about uh, the appearance of you when you come in. I don't care what you wear when you walk in these doors. I'm just glad that you're here. I I don't care about any of that stuff because appearance is not what God is focused on. And and throughout history, and I understand, I understand, there's nothing wrong with with trying to look a certain way. There's nothing wrong with, with being like, oh, I'm going to get dressed up to come to church. There's nothing wrong with that. Obviously, I don't necessarily do it, but there's nothing wrong with that. But you, you probably have been in a church at some point in your life where it's like, oh, suit and tie, your Sunday best, or at least button-down shirt, tucked-in shirt, khakis, whatever it is, right? We've all had those experiences. And I have been in churches where if you did not look the part, then you were not necessarily welcome. If you didn't look the part, if you didn't fit the mold, if you didn't act the way that the church expected you to act, talk the way they expect you to, expected you to talk, all of those things, then you would get some funny looks. You wouldn't be given opportunities to serve because you got to look like us, act like us, talk like us, smell like us first. That's not the way church is supposed to be. I'm glad you're here. And God doesn't judge you by your outward appearance, and neither do we. Neither do we. So I want to challenge you. If you have certain thoughts on what a person should look like, how they should act, or any of those sort of things, I want to challenge you, put it to the side. Guess what? There's no dress code in the Bible, at least not for our world today. If we did follow the dress code in the Bible, we all would look way different. And every church in America would not meet the standard. Even the fanciest church out there. The whole point is this. Don't judge somebody by their outward appearance. Not just by what they're wearing, but also by sizing them up. Because if we size David up, he surely doesn't look like a king. He's just a little guy, right? He's, 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 not, he's not a threat. But after Samuel appoints David... As the next king, David finds himself in service to Saul, who is still king, while Israel is at war with the Philistines. And the Israelites, they looked at a guy named Goliath, you know the story, who's over nine feet tall. So if we're judging by appearances here, you got a guy who's nine feet tall and little tiny 13, 14-year-old David where armor is just hanging off of him, not able to actually do anything. But you got this nine-foot-tall giant named Goliath that nobody wanted to fight. 
all of the strongest Israelites in their army. Nobody wanted to fight him. Everybody's scared of him because everybody that Goliath faced before, he just wiped off the face of the earth, defeated. But then little David comes along and he's like, I'll go fight him. People laugh at him. This, this, this kid is just tending to the sheep in the field a few days ago, and now he wants to come and fight a nine-foot-tall giant? Makes no sense. But I want to tell you something. It's better to fear the Lord than it is to be nine feet tall. It's better to fear God than it is to be the smartest person in the room. It's better to trust in him than to trust in your bank account. Everywhere. It's always better. And Goliath is standing there looking down at this kid and thinks, this has got to be a joke. This, this is ridiculous. Surely this is not the strongest that they have to send out. Surely. Whatever they're doing, I don't understand, but this, this is ridiculous. So the next thing that we have to understand if we want to make a difference based off of the story of David, is that we have to be honest. See, David, you know, defeats Goliath, cuts his head off, parades it around like a wild man. Um, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely insane of a story. Um, and if, you, uh, if you've got kids, I'm sure that you've told them about David and Goliath, but uh, it's really gruesome. <laughs> I mean, it is, it's not like a G-rated story. This is an R-rated story where you, they're, People with their heads being cut off, and it's wild. Anyways, so we know that he goes on to defeat Goliath and then goes on to eventually become king after he has a whole situation with Saul where Saul tries to kill him multiple times, and David just like gets out of the way and, and has the opportunity to kill Saul, doesn't. Eventually, David takes over as king. And what we learn from David is not always good things. There are sometimes bad things that David did. He wasn't perfect by any means. And David goes on to do great things. Maybe the greatest king that this world has ever seen. Maybe. But he isn't perfect. And as a matter of fact, he does one of the most awful things that a person can do. There's a, there's a woman named Bathsheba who is described as a beautiful woman. And she's bathing out on the rooftop. And David, where he's at in his, in his kingdom and in, in his home, he can oversee the entire city, and he notices Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop. The problem is Bathsheba is married to a guy named Uriah. Uriah is out fighting for David and for the Israelites out at war. But David sees something that he wants, and he sees someone that he wants. So he brings Bathsheba to his home, and uh, they do things that adults do. And it's not a good situation. But then all of a sudden, he's like, okay, it's fine. I got away with it. But then all, then all of a sudden, there's a problem. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. So he realizes, oh, Uriah's not home. And people are going to put two and two together. And they're going to say, how, how does she get pregnant if her husband is out of war? So David tries to become a little bit more tricky. And he calls Uriah home for more. He sends out a message to, to, his, to his soldier. He says, bring, bring Uriah back home. Uriah comes home confused. Why in the world you, brought, you took me away from my brothers who are out serving? 
I, I shouldn't be home. I'm a soldier. I should be out at war. I, I, I feel like I'm abandoning my, my nation, my country, my friends. So he calls him home, and he's confused, and he refuses to go inside of his home because David's thought is, I'll bring your eye home, and then he'll sleep with his wife. And then my hands are clean. Nobody will, be no, well, nobody will know. Problem is, Uriah refuses to go in his home. Because Uriah does not understand. Refuses to go in his home, sleeps outside on the doorstep of his home, and then eventually goes back to war. And David's like, great, now what do I do? So and when you get stuck in a situation where you do something wrong and you're not honest about it, what do you end up doing? Just keep digging and digging and digging deeper. So Uriah gets sent back to war, but not that he just go back to war. David says, okay, if you're not going to sleep with your wife, I'm going to put you on the front lines, which is a death sentence. He kills him, puts him on the front lines, Uriah is killed, David marries Bathsheba, nobody's none the wiser, right? God is. See, we can fool everybody. Everybody. You can probably even fool your spouse for a certain period of time. I mean, how many times do you hear a story about a double life that somebody was, was living? And it's like, how did that happen? Somebody who has two families, married to one person, has kids, and are married to another person, has kids, and neither family knows. That has happened in our world. How does that happen? Because we're really good at faking it. Because we're really good at hiding things. How many times have you heard about a pastor, not just celebrity pastors, but like a pastor the size of our church who has an appearance, but all along was living a different life behind closed doors that nobody knew about and that eventually it came out. And it's embarrassing for the church, for the pastor, and it's embarrassing to God. We, we know that this stuff happens. We are so good at this. And we may be able to fool people around us for a period of time. You may be able to fool somebody your entire life. But you're never going to fool God. And God sends a guy named Nathan to David, who's another prophet. And Nathan confronts him. See, David thinks he's got away with it. He thinks no one will ever know, but here comes Nathan, who shares a story about a rich man. He talks to David, and he shares him this story that isn't true. He says, hey, I want to tell you about this rich man who has plenty of sheep. He's got plenty of cattle. And there's this poor man with only one little measly lamb that he loved like a child. It was his favorite lamb. It's the only thing that he had. He's poor, and he got, it's, it's the runt of the litter. David could probably relate. The runt of the litter. And then the rich man had visitors, and instead of taking one of his own sheep that he had plenty of to prepare for a meal, he went and took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the meal. And when David heard this, he was furious. How dare this person, how dare this rich man steal from this poor man? How dare he do that? And Nathan says, yeah, how dare he? That person is you. You're the rich man. 
You've got everything that you could ever want. And you went and took the one thing from this one poor man who was out serving you, who's out serving God. You stole everything from him, his wife, his family, his life. How dare you do this? Then David said to Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, 13, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Because Nathan's first reaction, or David's first reaction is, oh, I'm dead. I'm dead. This is it. But Nathan says to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't consequences. Because sometimes we mix up this whole grace thing. Sometimes we think, well, God provides grace, so that means I don't have consequences, right? No, absolutely not. We have consequences for our actions. The things that we do in this life have consequences. And those consequences doesn't mean that grace wasn't provided. Grace is always provided. But grace is, what grace means is that those consequences and your actions do not define you. Rather, the Savior of the world, Jesus, defines you if you choose to accept him. And because of God's grace, the wages of sin are death, but because of God's grace, he's provided an answer and a way for our sin not to destroy us, as evident in this situation here with David. What he did was awful. I mean, this is some heavy stuff. David really, really messed up. When you sin, don't compound it by trying to cover it up. Did your parents ever, uh, have your parents ever confronted you about something when you were a kid? I always hated the question, hey, do you have something to tell us? Oh, no. What could it be? Let me see. Let me go down the list. What could be the most obvious thing? Because I don't want to confess something that they don't know about. And then I'm in trouble for more things, right? I hated that question. Hey, you got something to tell me? Because sometimes it could even be a good thing, right? So what do we say? No. What do you want to tell me? Hated that question. And sometimes it feels like that's how we treat God. All right, God, well, what should I confess? As if he doesn't already know. Because here's the truth. Your parents, when you were a kid, or if you are a parent now, knows more than you think they know, right? Sometimes a kid thinks that they're being smart, think they're kind of outsmarting you a little bit, um, my daughter's gone, so I can talk about her. Um, one time, I, I gave her, uh, uh, I think it was grapes or something, and, uh, and, and I walked up, upstairs. And you know the first time when you discovered that your kids discovered lying? You, ever, you know that? Like, when they're really young, they don't know that lying's a thing. Like, they don't know that that exists. Russell, my son who's three, doesn't know that lying exists, but he's close. And um, Camden, the first time I remember where she discovered lying was a thing, I gave her some grapes, I walked upstairs, and I grabbed one thing, and I walked right, bound, right back downstairs, and her plate was clean. And I was like, what happened to your grapes? She's like, I ate them. I was like, there's no way. So, of course, I walk over to the trash can, and she doesn't understand that I have the ability to look in the trash can, and <laughs> I open the trash can, all of her grapes are sitting there, and I was like, oh my goodness, my child knows how to lie now. Like, this is a whole new ball game. But she thought, outsmarted him. He's not going to figure this one out. 
And that's how we treat God. Oh, outsmarted him. I may have gotten away with it in the world, so that makes me think that I also got away with it with God. We don't. Be honest. If you're going to make a difference, be honest. Be honest about who you are. Be honest about what you're doing. There's grace from God. There's mercy from God. There's love from God. Don't abuse grace. When we confess what we've done wrong, we find freedom, not condemnation. And finally, the third thing that we see, if we want to make a difference from, from David, please God, not people. Do, do you know how David is described? He's described as a man after God's own heart. Saul was king before David, and he, and he was more focused on what others thought of him. That was what Saul was, was focused on. He had very low self-esteem and was always looking over his shoulder. Oh no, who's going to replace me? Who's going to replace me? Who's going to replace me? Worried constantly. And when Samuel confronted Saul and he tells him that God is moving on from Saul as king and someone else will take over, listen to how Samuel described this person, which will eventually be David. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him leader of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's commands. See, David, his heart is bent towards God. His heart is focused on God, not focused on others. And you know this already, but the bottom line is, there's no way you can please everybody. You can't. It's impossible. As, as your pastor... And as a pastor for a long time now, you learn very quickly it's impossible to please people. It's impossible. Now, there are times where we may try to work with somebody. There are times where I may, I, I will always listen to what you have to say, but there are also times where I have to be like, this person is just, I can't please them. But the good news is my job is not to please you. Your job is not to please me. Your job is not to please the people around you. That's none of our jobs. Our only job is to point back to the creator of the universe. Our only job is to please God. Our only job is to recognize who he is, what he's done, how he's changed our life, and focus on him, not you. I love you, but I don't care really what you think. Now, we all want each other's approval. We want people to like us. That's, our, that's in our DNA. But when it comes down to it, if it's between pleasing you or pleasing God, I'm sorry, but you're not even close. You are not even close. And neither am I. David was worried about God and God alone. I mean, if you don't believe me that it's hard to please people, just read Amazon reviews. You're shopping for Christmas, right? Just go down the list. My wife does not like to buy anything without reading reviews. And I'm just like, it's, it's a cesspool. I don't care. I'm not going to go and read it. Because you could even, it could, a product could have 4.8 stars out of five. And what's at the top of the list? Somebody's negative review where their finger was cut off by something. I don't know right? And you're like, oh, I can't buy this product. You can't please everybody. Now, hopefully your finger doesn't get cut off. If your finger gets cut off, you should not be pleased. But 
in any situation, you will find a somebody, a review somebody who is not happy. Guess what? I love our church. There have been many people who have left our church because they don't love our church. Well, I shouldn't say love. They don't like our church. Many, many, many people have done that over the years. We've been around for six years. People come and people go. And guess what? All of you in this room, some of you are going to leave because you don't like something that I did or that I said or that somebody said or the way something looked or the way a song sounded or whatever. Somebody in this room will eventually get to that place. And when that happens, don't feel bad. It's fine. It's all right. Maybe God's calling you somewhere else. And guess what? We'll send you off with love. There's no hard feelings. I love you. And if you come to this church or if you go to another church, praise God. I don't care. I want you to be here, but if you want to be here, I'm not, I don't want you to be here if you don't want to be here. I want you to be where God has called you to be. But if you expect us to cater to you, you're in the wrong place. There's no way around it. Now, if you trust myself and our staff and our board and our leadership team to pursue God with all that we are, with all that we have, then you're in the right place. If you don't trust us to do that, go somewhere where you do. Our only goal is to please God. It doesn't mean you can't have a voice. It doesn't mean that you can't have an opinion. But it does mean that we're seeking God, we're not seeking you. And when you understand why you are doing what you are doing in your life, to make a difference, then it doesn't matter the opposition that you will receive because you will receive it. And when opposition does come your way, if you're focused on pleasing people, then you're going to quit. You're going to throw in the towel. Because you're going to think, well, I'm just trying to do good things. We talked about this last week. And this was Elijah's situation. I'm just trying to do good things. I'm just trying to help people. God, I'm just trying to live for you. How come there's all this opposition? And God says, because you live in a world where sin exists. You live in a world where people exist with free will. You live in a world where bad things happen because this is a broken world. But guess what? I'm redeeming this world. Guess what? I'm providing a way for this world. Guess what? I'm providing a way for you. So trust in me. Don't get bogged down by the things that are trying to bring you down. Instead, Trust in the fact that my word says I provided a way, that my word says it's on my shoulders, that my word says it's not on you. Trust in me. Lay everything on the line. Lay everything at my feet. And when you realize that it's God who's working, not you, not you, then all the pressure's off. And you are free to make a difference. And when other people try to slow you down, leave them behind. When other people try to bring you down to their level, leave them behind. Because God says that he will pursue them. Now, it doesn't mean we don't love. It doesn't mean we don't care. But it does mean if you know, if I continue to be around this person, that they will bring me down, then you need to get away. Now, if everybody in the world is like that to you, then maybe you're the problem, okay? Maybe you're the problem. But if you encounter people and you're like, every time I'm around this person, I feel like garbage. I, I don't believe in myself. They're negative. I, 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 don't, I don't know how 
to exist with this person. They're affecting me in a way that is hurting me. Then you need to get away. Don't please that person. Instead, focus on pleasing God. So you want to make a difference. First, don't judge by appearances. And don't let anybody else judge you by appearances. Second, be honest about who you are, about what you've done, about how you've fallen short. And then third, focus on God and nobody else. Because when you do that, you can't fail. So I'm going to invite the worship team up as we close. And what we're going to do is we're going to close with communion this morning. As we're entering into the, the Christmas season and being, being the first Sunday of Advent, I know this wasn't a Christmas sermon, um, but it was a, it's a time where I want you to focus on making a difference. And a way for us to be reminded of that is to receive communion, to receive the grace of God, which is the example of communion. We know what communion represents, right? It represents the fact that Jesus sacrificed everything for us. He laid his body on the line. He shed his blood so that we could live, so that we could have hope, so that we could have opportunity and a chance to make a difference. But it's only through him. See, this is, this is a moment, communion is, this is a moment where we have to understand it's not just something we do. Jesus was born in the, on this earth, lived his whole life, a perfect life, a special life, only to be crucified on a cross. Why? He came to this earth to die for you. That's why he came. Don't forget it. Don't sell it short. But rather, understand through him, we can do all things. Amen? So here at City on the Hill, you don't have to be an owner of our church or a member. All that you have to be is a believer of Jesus Christ. I always give a little bit of a ground rules for you so that we're all on the same page. In a moment, I'm going to invite you all forward. I want you to exit out the side of your, of your row, come down to the front, receive the elements, and go back to the center aisle, back to your seats. And this over here are gluten-free wafers. If you are gluten-free, um, in the baskets that Pastor Nicole and Pastor Tara are holding, it's a wafer and the juice in the cup together. So grab, <clears throat> excuse me, grab that and then grab a gluten-free one if you need that. If you don't eat gluten-free, then you're fine with those. But don't let anything get in the way. Don't let anything distract you, okay? Slow down, take time, and recognize the sacrifice Jesus has made. and other people's life. Amen? Will you come and receive the elements together?